As you arrived um, to uh, church today, and you opened your bulletin, and you saw uh, what the sermon was on today, and you saw that it was on uh, the parable of the older son, or the parable of the elder son, I wonder if you went, oh no, I've missed the best one. I've missed the most famous one. I've missed the parable that everyone knows. I've missed the parable of the prodigal son. Why did I come on bank holiday weekend to hear the parable of the elder son? The parable of the prodigal son is much better. Um, and I uh, wonder if I suppose preachers are dividing up Luke 15 and uh, the preaching rotor is sent out. You can imagine, can't you, the preachers there with their uh, crossed fingers waiting for the prodigal son to land into their inbox. Yes, I'll preach on the prodigal son. And then they get the prodigal, uh, the, 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 uh, the parable of the elder son. They go, oh, the parable, I wanted the prodigal son. Because this, um, we might think that this is uh, like a kind of difficult second album in terms of parables, might we? We might think that this is just a kind of TV spin-off after uh, the really good show. We might think that this is Joey to the younger son's friends. We might think if you're a cinephile that this is uh, the Godfather part three uh, to the younger son's Godfather parts one and two. And if the prodigal son is the Beatles of parables, then you might think that the elder son is Ringo Starr voicing the narrator in Thomas the Tank Engine uh, after his solo career has not gone so well. I'm exaggerating a little, obviously, um, but the temptation for us today might be to turn off our ears uh, because we think that we heard the most important bit last week. Let me encourage us all as we start not to do that. Um, because um, even though um, over the past couple of weeks we've been preaching um, the separate stories of chapter 15 in the parables of the kingdom, um, they actually function as one parable. One parable. And we see today the conclusion of that one parable with a twist in the tale right at the end. And that's important because that twist is Jesus's um, conclusion. And like the, the expert storyteller that he is, he's, he's coming to the main point of this chapter of stories, uh, such that he started setting up the point that we're going to see today all the way back in verses 1, 2, and 3 at the beginning of chapter 15. And why is that twist important? Well, because as these parables, uh, we've been looking at these parables, we've been seeing that they've been looking at who comes into God's kingdom and who is left out of God's kingdom. And the twist will show us something important, which is it is easy to think that you are first in line into the kingdom of God. It's easy to think that you are the first in the queue to the kingdom of God, whereas actually you're way off. You can be way off, such that you're in a different queue altogether. So, Without further ado, what is the twist that we saw in today's parable? Well, I think it's this. I think it's a surprising attitude to the lost. A surprising attitude to the lost. To see this twist, let me take you all the way back to the beginning of chapter 15, uh, where, uh, as we heard uh, from Judith just a moment ago, the Pharisees and the sinners are there, and the Pharisees are asking... How can Jesus accept sinners into the kingdom of God? The Pharisees think that they're at the front of the queue to get into the kingdom of God. They're the good people of the time. And who are these sinners coming along and getting in the same queue as us? 
no thanks. And Jesus, hearing their complaint, tells these uh, three stories. Uh, and parts one and two that we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks um, uh, show us God's attitude uh, to the lost. Um, God, when he sees lost people, he goes out to find them because he loves it when lost people are found and come into the kingdom. So we've seen a bit of a pattern over the last uh, couple, of, couple of weeks, haven't we? Um, three weeks ago, uh, we had the story of the lost sheep. Um, let me just recap the story of the lost sheep for you. A sheep gets lost, obviously. A shepherd goes out searching. The sheep gets found. Big party. Two weeks ago, we had the story of the lost coin. What happens? Coin gets lost. You see, the, the thing about this is things get lost. Lady goes searching. The coin gets found. Big party. What else would you do? It's a coin. Imagine what she would have done if she found a fiver. That would have been an amazingly big party. One week ago, the story of the lost younger son. What happens? Son gets lost. You see the emotional stakes getting higher. It's a son now, not a sheep, not a coin. The son returns and is met by his father. He's found and he's restored. And what happened? You guessed it. A massive party. And everybody celebrates exactly what you would expect. Except that's not what happens. Everybody does celebrate except one person. One person. His brother. And there's the twist. This is different. This sticks out. It's like a sore thumb, isn't it? And we're meant to think, hang on, what's going on here? And it's not just a bit different, it's actually very, very different. Because um, rather than joining in with the joy of the Father and, and the celebration of the Father, he's angry. That's how the story starts. You see in verse 22, meanwhile, we're seeing a comparison between the rest of the chapter and this one guy. Now, one of my uh, favorite books as a child was a, a book called uh, Meanwhile, Back at the Ranch. Don't know if you've read it. It's fantastic. Um, and the book follows the story of a, a chap called Farmer Hicks and his wife, Elma. And they live in the Dust Bowl of America. And uh, nothing happens on the farm where they live. So one day, uh, Farmer Hicks, he goes uh, into his local town, which is called Sleepy Gulch. Okay? And on every page, uh, Farmer Hicks does something totally mundane. You could imagine that a place like Sleepy Gulch would be mundane, and he does something totally mundane. The most exciting thing that he does is he orders in the local diner uh, five different types of potatoes and a side of fries. Okay? Wow, exciting. And then at the bottom of each page, after you read what Farmer Hicks has done, it says, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And you turn over the page, and something crazy is happening on the ranch to Elma. So, during the course of the book, back at the ranch, she wins the lottery. She inherits a fortune. She strikes oil. Then she meets the President of the United States. And at the same time, she has a litter of kittens, puppies, and if that wasn't enough, of piglets too. The point of Meanwhile Back at the Ranch is just this, to create a comparison between two completely different things, mundanity, and something very, very exciting. And like that, we have a comparison here. On the one hand, we have the celebration of all the other stories in chapter 15. Lost things becoming found. Celebration. The father, he's full of joy at the, his, the return of his lost son. And on the other hand, we have a single figure 
experiencing cold fury at someone lost being found. And the comparison is meant to make us think, what is this guy's problem? What is this guy's problem? This is what Jesus wants to address. Because this is where we start in chapter 15. The Pharisees have exactly the same attitude as this guy. The Pharisees, they're muttering about Jesus accepting lost people to, to be found in the kingdom. The anger is the same. They have the same problem. And Jesus, in this parable for us, is going to diagnose what that problem is. He's going to diagnose the problem. And then he's going to show us how the problem leaves people outside the kingdom. And that is why it matters for us today. Because look at where the son is at the end of the parable. Uh, he's on the verge of entering the greatest party his community has ever experienced. And he, he prefers the view from the outside. And the Pharisees are the same. They are witnesses to the greatest reconciliation the world has ever seen. The Savior Jesus meeting with sinners. And all they can muster is muttering. And we might be in that same dangerous spot where we witness this amazing invitation into the kingdom and we just stand on the edge of the party muttering like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Come on, Scrooge, go into Christmas. And he's there, you know, no. Who wants to be Scrooge? No one. No one wants to be the person whose attitude leads them to turn down the greatest offer ever. And so we need to actually see, we need Jesus to expose what is at the root of this attitude so that we don't fall into the same trap. So, what's at the root of this attitude? The wrong attitude towards God. Now, Jesus, I think, is a, a supreme storyteller, isn't he? And he um, develops the character of the older son expertly to show us exactly what the underlying issue is, down in uh, verses 29 and 30. The son won't go into the celebration. He's angry. Uh, the father has been told by the staff on duty at the party. Um, out he goes to see what's going on. And uh, we get to see what's going on behind the son's anger, up in his mind, as he erupts in verse 29. Do you see what he says? He begins with, look. Look. Now stop there. I, I think this is probably the first sign that something is seriously wrong with his attitude. That look in, um, in the Greek literally means behold. Um, and so he's saying to his father, Dad, um, look at what's going on. Can you just look, please, for me for a moment, Dad? The implication is, Dad, you need to look because you didn't get it right the first time. You didn't see it properly. Dad, you're actually acting like someone, someone who can't make an assessment of the situation properly. What a crazy thing to say to a father from a son. And he continues... All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And here's where we see the son's attitude, don't we? He thinks that the relationship with the father is based on this principle. If I obey you, dad, you've got to do stuff for me. If I do stuff, dad, you do stuff for me. The son has been working hard in, in the field, and now he thinks the dad owes him something. So slaving equals I get a goat. Perfect logical sense, doesn't it? And so naturally, when his brother 
uh, returns, the person has done everything humanly possible not to deserve celebration. He just can't get his head around the fact that this guy would be showered with celebration. You can hear the sense of ringing injustice in his voice, can't you? As he says, but when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older son's logic is, no slaving on his part, so why a goat for him? The son thinks that the relationship with the father is entirely based on earning things from the father, and that is Jesus' dissection of the older uh, son's attitude and the Pharisee's attitude. It's how much you slave away is how much you deserve to be paid by God. And his description, ironically, is never more on point when he says, I've been slaving, because isn't that the attitude of a slave, not a son, which is what he is? And where does this attitude lead him? Where does the attitude of thinking that I can earn my way into the kingdom, I can earn my reward? Another irony, he's at loggerheads with his dad. The irony of the Pharisees is thinking they can earn their way into the kingdom means that they come up against Jesus, who is the one who is the way into the kingdom himself. They don't get it. They don't get how the Father operates. They don't get how God operates. But look, this is not just a problem uh, for the Pharisees, for those people who refuse to go into God's kingdom. Um, Christians can um, uh, exhibit this kind of attitude as well. In fact, um, the older son conclusion of that's unfair is pretty familiar to me, I've got to be honest, and I wonder about you. Um, if I obey, then I deserve something. Uh, why is that person over there who's uh, not obeying getting anything? Um, just do a thought experiment with me. If you put yourself in the position of the older son, you can see that he's actually got a point. Isn't that one of the geniuses of the parable? That you read the older son, and he's got some of the best lines. You think, actually, yeah, fair point. Imagine what it's been like for him. He's been a son witnessing the embarrassment of his father. He's watched the public sale of his father's property for his brat of a brother. Or imagine uh, he's been working out in the field and some of the other uh, laborers in the field, uh, they've been spreading the rumor of what his younger brother is up to in this foreign country and he hears the rumors of the debauchery and he can see his father getting embarrassed. And there he is, day in, day out, slaving away. And then one evening, he hears the music blaring. Uh, he hears the, the shouts of a crowd. He can smell delicious food coming from his father's house as he's approaching um, the house. Maybe he thinks, I, I don't know, we're not told, but I, I imagine maybe he thinks it's for him. Maybe he gets the WhatsApp group out of all his friends and he's texting into the WhatsApp group, look, my father's finally throwing that party for me. And he gets home and what does he see? It's the brother. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read those lines, don't you feel a sense of anger and indignation? What if it were you and someone had hurt your family, mistreated your parents, and you saw them in church receiving a warm welcome? Wouldn't you feel angry? I want to put it like that way, not because that's God's um, attitude, but because it's our attitude. 
It's in each of us, that sense of, if I obey, then God should reward me. And those people who don't obey God, why should they be let in? A few examples I've been thinking over uh, the past week about how this might apply to us as a church. Um, I know in um, uh, my own uh, life I can get jealous or bitter towards other members of the church. Uh, Why are things going well for them? Uh, Why is he or she being celebrated? Um, Does everyone not see what I'm doing? Um, God, come on, can you just look at this situation again, please? Can you not see how uh, rude that person can be? Can you not see how lazy that person can be? God, can you not see that I'm on double the amount of serving teams that that other person isn't on? God, come on, just take another look at the situation. They're not like me. Or maybe you feel the opposite, and sometimes you just get that kind of Schaffenfreude, that smugness when things aren't going well for someone else at church, and you think, well, that was obviously going to happen, wasn't it? Because they're not as good as me. God is rewarding me because I've earned it. I'm not like them. Underlying all of that is I obey, so God should reward me. And look, if we secretly nurse that in our, in our hearts, um, the, um, the consequences will be deadly for Inspire St. James. Um, because uh, won't, if we're trying to impress God all the time, won't we just suck the compassion and the love that we have for each other out of the, the church family? Because we'll be too busy trying to earn God's favor or, or leverage him with our good works or bitter towards those who we feel are less deserving than ourselves, rather than ministering out of love for one another. And another thing, we won't expose our sin to one another if we have this attitude. Because we'll always be trying to present ourselves as people who deserve the favour of the Father. So, relationships which challenge or encourage each other to godliness because we can see things in each other's lives, they'll just disappear. The slave mentality, if we let it take root in our Christian lives, will lead to one thing only. It will enslave us. Does anyone want to be part of a church where uh, compassion and godliness are on the downward trajectory? No. And secondly, I think that this attitude um, might lead to some serious crushing disappointment that we experience in our Christian lives. So if you set yourself up to think, I have obeyed, so now God must do for me. I've earned my way, so God should now reward me. When things are tough, when you get that news that you've been praying uh, that you wouldn't get, when you get disappointed, it will lead you to, God, I did my bit for you, so now where are you? You might be tempted to think that God um, isn't good because he's not rewarding you, or he can't see the situation, he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. Because that must be true, because if not, uh, why else would he not be rewarding you? It might not lead you to shaking your fist at the father uh, like the older son does in this kind of quite um, uh, a dramatic moment, but it will lead you to drifting out of love with God the father because you'll think, well, he doesn't care about me because otherwise he would have seen all the work that I've done and he would have rewarded me. And you'll just drift into this dislocation from God. Or maybe um, you're not yet following Jesus. Well, can I say to you, Um, If you think that you need to earn God's approval to get in, if you think you need to be good, if you think you just need to come to church and uh, join enough teams, if you think you need need to do enough um, to get God's approval, 
that will lead to one of two things. It will lead to despair because you'll realize that you can never do enough or it will lead to refusal like the sun in today's passage because you'll think, I've done way more than I need to do. I've done all these things and I couldn't possibly hang out with people who are less deserving from me. So you just won't, you, you won't find a church attractive. And it is all based on this notion, I obey so God rewards me. So we just need to take out the police do not cross line and take that all across that attitude. It's the wrong attitude to God. And it's ugly, isn't it? As we read the parable, it is ugly. And we do not want that ugliness to take root in our own lives. So how do we get rid of it? Well, by relating to God in an entirely different way. And this is the right attitude towards God that we see in the attitude of the father to the son. Now, in order to show us how ugly this attitude is, uh, we're going to see a comparison um, with the attitude of the father and God's attitude um, towards people. And that attitude is this. God loves you, so he gives freely to you. God loves you, so he will give freely to you. Just look at at the father's uh, response there, uh, down in verse 31. This is beautiful, I think. He he redefines who the son thinks he is, very simply, by referring to him as my son. This is not about acting like a slave. This is not about earning. This is about being a son. And we're about to see how fathers relate to their sons in the next line. As he continues, he says, You are always with me, and everything that I have is yours. Isn't that beautiful? This is the story that the father wants to tell the son. The father... He is the son of the father. And the father loves his son. The son has access to everything the father has. Nothing is kept back. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is stored away just for the father. Everything he has is emptied so that he would give it to the son and share it with the son. It is a loving, totally self-giving relationship where nothing is held back. And that should transform the way that the son thinks. He doesn't have to earn it. He doesn't have to do anything for it. He certainly doesn't have to slave away for it because he isn't a slave. He's a son. If he thinks slaving in a field equals getting a goat, the father wants to go, no, no, you don't get it. The right attitude is being a son equals being given everything, including the goat. The father loves his son, so he shares everything with him. So naturally, when a son who was far away, who was lost, who he thought was dead, when he comes back, he celebrates because it's within the father's nature to love completely and to give everything in celebration and love of his sons. The right attitude to God, folks, is not, I obey you so that you give me stuff. It is just simply to recognize that God loves you and he will not and he hasn't held anything back from you. And that is the same for everyone, whether they have deserved it or not. 
And ultimately, God has shown that that is his attitude as a loving father because he sent Jesus, his one and only son, the teller of this story, to our world so that he would die on the cross for us and for our sins. The father has held nothing back from us, not even his son. And that means that one day we will feast with the Father in heaven because he has held nothing back from us. And you know what the best part is? No slaving is required because it's free. This is what the sinners understand at the beginning of chapter 15 about Jesus. This is what they understand. This is what they love about him that he would give everything to them, even his own life. And so they flock to him, and they get to enter the kingdom for free because they recognize it's from his love that they get to enter the kingdom. Let me ask us all, as we go through our lives, uh, when we get angry or we feel that other people are being celebrated or we're scandalized by people who we think are less deserving joining the church, do you relate to God by saying, look, God, uh, can you uh, re-look at the... Uh, circumstances here or do we remember that God has said that he is our father and that means everything that we have is ours if we let God say to us my son everything I have is yours we'll see that we don't have to work to gain entrance to the kingdom we will stop trying to do things to earn his affection which will mean it is okay when others are welcomed in and celebrated even though they don't deserve it because we don't deserve it too because we know God has shared everything with us already and when we're disappointed because something hasn't worked out for us rather than feeling bitter towards God God why haven't you given this to me we'll see and we'll know and we'll remember that his nature is loving And that one day, uh, that will culminate in him taking us to the banquet of banquets at the end of time. So that even if it's hard now, we know that God loves us. How freeing to recognize that. How freeing to know that you don't have to earn God's favor. He'll give it to you for free. How freeing to know that God won't and has held back nothing from you. And that one day... uh, you will be at that feast with all of God's children who accept this free offer of his love because you are a son, not a slave. All you have to do is accept that God loves you like a father. Now, Jesus is a master storyteller. He's dissected um, that attitude of the Pharisees acting like slaves, and he's given them an alternative, being like a son, but he's got one last storytelling piece of genius um, to offer us, and that is this. Jesus doesn't tell us at the end of the parable what decision the son makes. It's left hanging in the air uh, with the Pharisees, with his audience. It's left hanging in the air uh, with us now um, because... Um, us as the listeners have to decide for ourselves what we will do. And the Pharisees have to decide what they will do. Uh, Jesus is graciously um, showing a gracious attitude to the Pharisees because Jesus is actually holding out sonship to them as well. Now look, maybe you're like those Pharisees. You haven't come in yet. Uh, Here is what the Father's attitude, God the Father's attitude is to you. 
It's, uh, it's right there uh, in verse 28. Angry and refusal to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. Maybe God is pleading with you now if you haven't yet accepted um, Jesus and you haven't started following him. Maybe God is pleading with you now to come in to the feast. You can come and know my love. You can come in and it's free. Or uh, if you're someone who has come into the feast, uh, you've started following Jesus, um, but you're still struggling with that older brother syndrome, uh, maybe moments of thinking, oh, God must be really impressed with me because of what I do, or, or, or jealousy and bitterness towards others because you feel they're being um, promoted more than you. Maybe God is saying to you, you are already in the feast. You have a seat at my table. You don't have to do anything. In fact, the way that you got in here was not by earning it, but because I love you. So you can stop striving. What do you think, folks? It, it sounds uh, good, doesn't it, to be invited into that feast? And the only thing that is stopping this uh, elder brother from going in, it's not actually the things that he's done. It's not his rudeness to his father. It's not that he's been uncaring to his brother. It's not his fit of rage. The only thing that is stopping the elder brother from going into the feast is his refusal. It could all change like that in a second if he just recognized his father loves him and went in with his arm around his shoulder into his feast. But the parable is left open, as if to say for each of us, in the face of this loving father who would come out and plead that we would go into the festival with him, who would share everything with us, what decision will we make? Will uh, the elder brother stay out in the field, angry, bitter, self-righteous? Or will he go into the warmth to celebrate the feast of lost things becoming found and lost sinners becoming loved sons? The question is still open for him. Why wouldn't he? And the question is still open for us. Why wouldn't we? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that that is exactly what you are. You are a Father who is loving, who has uh, not even held back your Son, but rather sent him uh, to die for us uh, so that we could be freely accepted into your kingdom. And Father, wherever we are, we ask today uh, that we would um, see how much you love us, how much uh, your love is free, and we would accept it, and we would let it transform our attitude towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.